Open our eyes, Lord, that we might see. Open our ears that we might hear. Open our mind and our heart that we might understand, so that we will turn to you and live. Amen. Well, as I mentioned off the top, there is a certain amount of childlikeness that I think is so necessary to enter into the events of this week. Otherwise, these stories become black and white and flat. We need the imagination of children, of poets, of artists, of storytellers in order to add the color back in. And so that's actually what I hope to do just for a few moments this morning is to add in a little bit more of the color, to bring it from 2D to 3D and then draw a few reflections from the events of this day. Uh, We pick up in the story following on the anointing of Jesus at Bethany, where he had come to gather with his closest friends to celebrate Passover. And as was their tradition, they would have begun to make their way up the mountain to Jerusalem at the time of Passover. And many scholars believe that this would not have been the only entry, uh, sort of uh, uh, with pomp and circumstance, that would have happened on Passover. In fact, there are a number of entries that would have happened that each in their own way were making a political statement. Uh, the most notable that I want to sort of contrast Jesus' entry into Jerusalem with is that of Pontius Pilate. Uh, Pilate is the governor of Judea, uh, and he would often take Passover as a moment in which he would put on display the mighty power of Rome. The mighty power of the empire. Uh, Jerusalem on this week in particular would have tripled in population. And so for Pilate, this was the moment to remind everyone who was actually in charge. Uh, Pilate traditionally would have entered in. Is there weird things before I keep going? Is there weird things happening with sound or is it just me? Okay, I just want to make sure. It was like loud, then soft, then loud, then soft. (laughs) which again, feels like an appropriate contrast for this moment. Pilate would have entered in on a war horse or a chariot. There would have been no need to climb a sycamore tree in order to see Pilate because he would have been in a place of prominence and power. Following him would have been the glinting armor of Roman soldiers, spears, swords, shields, chariots. Pilate, after all, was a foreign ruler in a place that he did not want to make his home. He was a tyrannical tourist in the promised land of God's people. He didn't want to live in Jerusalem because Jerusalem was below him. He was born for the beauty of Rome, not the dirt-filled streets of Jerusalem. His power is Caesar's power, so he carries with him in his title, in his body, in his, in his authority as a ruler, the power of Caesar, the one who they called the son of Zeus, the son of God, the prince of peace. And what kind of God is Caesar the son of? The God of violence, of retribution. The God of blood-stained conquest, of power and pride. The God who wounds in order to worship, to be worshiped. Caesar's armies conquer a place by force, telling everyone that they must proclaim Caesar as Lord and God or else they were to be killed. In fact, many of the martyrs of the early church, the reason why they were put to death was because these women and these men refused to worship Caesar. It became the litmus test for Rome as to whether or not you were actually a follower of the way. 
So that's Caesar's entrance. The shiny glimmering of pomp and circumstance, power, prestige. Hailing the son of Zeus, the son of God, the prince of peace. But it is a bloody peace. But just imagine for a moment, you are a first century Jewish woman, man, child. You've made your pilgrimage to the temple for Passover. You have sung with your family the Psalms of Ascent as you make your way through the wilderness to this place. You're coming to celebrate the exodus, the freedom from slavery in Egypt, knowing fully well that you find yourself under the boot of an empire once again. So there's conflict in your body as you enter into Jerusalem. Celebrating what God has done, wondering if there's any end in sight, whether or not God listens as God once did. There's a pagan people that still rule over you. God has called you to be his people, but you're subject to a foreign ruler. And so you enter into Jerusalem this week, once again, hoping for a new exodus, but maybe hope is beginning to wane. You're waiting for the Messiah, someone who will come and liberate you. Your dust-covered feet finally come into the gate of Jerusalem to the city of David. It's been a long journey. It's uphill the entire way. You've dodged wild animals and bandits and the pains that come with a journey like this, one that is familiar to you because you've taken it since you were a child. And this is the scene that you're met with, a man parading on a horse claiming to be your king. More than that, claiming to be the image of God. And this is happening on one side of the city, and the crowd remains silent, watching the glitter and clanging of the armored representatives of Rome walk by. As you're watching, another noise from behind you begins to reach your ears. It sounds like shouts of hosannas, the noise of a gathering crowd, singing songs in a native tongue. And so you make your way through the crowd, pushing through the market toward the noise and toward the hymns. And whereas you could see Pilate from a distance, this one, this crowd that, this one sur- that they are surrounding, you can barely see his head over the crowd. He's sitting much lower than Pilate. So you push through. You see a man coming from the other side of town from Bethpage of all places, riding on a donkey. And very quickly you pick up from his accent and the accent of his friends. He's a Galilean. It's a backwoods part of Israel. He even has an Aramaic accent. It's clear from the way he speaks, he's coming from a rural fishing village. So you begin to wonder, what political party is he possibly affiliated with? You begin to ask. He's a messiah, they tell you. You begin to ask around, who is this person? He's a a new messiah. What about the donkey? Did he choose that? He did answer someone standing next to you. In fact, Jesus picked out the colt himself, sent his disciples. He told them that all they needed to tell the owner of the colt was that the Lord needs it. The Lord needs it, you ask? Your mind immediately goes to David, who said the same thing when he justified why he was allowed to eat the consecrated bread. Is this man connected to David? But you wonder, "Ah, that wouldn't make sense. Would he not, son of David, come on a war horse? A chariot? Why a cult? Why so inconspicuous? Why is he looking at everyone in the eye if he's a king? Does he not realize to be a king is to be above humanity? Kings don't do that. You're watching. Now you're just enraptured. Your friends begin to pick up palm branches. 
Something's happening. They begin to take off their clothes, wave the palm branches, sets them on the road. You begin to feel the emotion change in this moment. Something's happening. Hosanna, yells a voice behind you. It startles you. Save us, shouts another. Save us now. Rescue us. You've been told since you were a little child the stories of God hearing the cries of his people. Does God hear them? Will God hear me? Does Yahweh still listen? Now the crowd erupts in singing songs, full voice, the psalms of King David at the top of their lung. Your mercy endures forever. You've never heard a crowd sing this loudly in a city controlled by a man on a war horse with shiny armor. You watch him begin to think to yourself, I hope he knows what he's doing. Most of the so-called messiahs start off strong, but end up dead in prison. This Jesus actually seems to have started off pretty slow. It's not the start to a revolution that you'd want. In fact, you look at all of his friends, aside from the normal sword, short sword that they would have carried, this doesn't look like an army. This doesn't look like a military force that can take on the centurions of Rome. In fact, if anything, it looks like the fishermen from your local village. Well, hopefully they've come in disguise and Jesus will really ramp things up soon. Maybe this week will be the week that he begins to gather their arms. You think to yourself, I sure hope he does it my way. I sure hope he does it the right way. And you watch him slowly on a donkey move by. The entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem is saturated with meaning. It is saturated with echoes of Old Testament prophets and poets. It's the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy in Zechariah 9, verse 9, that John quotes. Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter Jerusalem. Your king has come triumphant and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey. Zechariah will later go on to contrast this entrance with that of the war horse and the chariot. Jesus' entrance is saturated with meaning because at the heart of it, it's the revelation of who God actually is. Pilate is the image of a God of violence, retribution, a blood-stained conquest, a hunger for power, control, and pride. The God who wounds in order to be worshipped and wounds those who he demands worship of, whose armies conquer a place by force and pillage. And in contrast to this revelation, Jesus comes as God in the flesh, the God who takes all of the violence of the world into his own body in order to redeem and to rescue, who does not conquer through bloodstained conquest, but is conquered by a bloodstained conquest in order to reveal the instinctual heart of God, which is not to strike with a spear, but to be struck. To form a new people, 
A God who does not wound, but is wounded. Who does not wrangle, but is wrangled. And to be clear, his arrival subverts every expectation of a Messiah. Every expectation of what you would have hoped for, of how you would have hoped to have been set free. Jesus comes in almost the exact opposite, almost a mockery of the people's expectations. And friends, is this not still how God comes? Is this not still how God arrives in our world and in our lives in unexpected, subversive ways? Uh, This past week, I've been reading through a collection of poetry uh, by a poet named Drew Jackson. Uh, He's the founding pastor of Hope East Village in New York City. Um, And he writes reflections on the opening chapter of Luke's gospel accounts. And he does it through the framework. He's a, a black pastor and he writes it through the framework of the black experience. And what it would look like to take these stories of God coming into the world through the incarnation of Jesus. And what it would look like if he had done it today in a margin, through a marginalized community like the black community. And uh, the title of the collection of poetry is called God Speaks Through Wombs, Poems of God's Unexpected Coming. I want to read you one because it's, uh, and the poem is titled God Speaks Through Wombs. It's the same as the title of the collection. It's his reflection on God coming to Sarah to announce the birth of John the Baptist. Listen to these words. In the days of empires and puppet regimes, God speaks. Through wombs wrestled and discarded because they were unviable. This is what they do. The Romes, the Babylons, the USAs, the men, tossed to the side as detritus what they've deemed unfit to be utilized. But God speaks through wombs, birthing prophetic utterances, the object of public scorn given the power to name the happenings of the Lord. Elizabeth is her name. Say her name. It is she who will be the one through whom the covenant is kept. She, like a priestess, speaks her word while the leading male voices are shut. Enough of this unbelieving religion that masquerades as faith. Divine favor is placed on what we have disgraced. It's the same theme that Paul will pick up in our New Testament reading this morning, Philippians chapter 2, where Jesus is described as coming in in the form of a slave. What Paul is doing in this moment is pointing out the fact that God takes on the form of a slave, that God does this in order to reveal that slaves are human too. And no one would have thought this in that moment. The entrance of Jesus, the coming of Jesus, through a womb, shows us that the humility of God is best revealed in those who we oftentimes do not think of as fully human, the least of these. God comes through people and people groups in unexpected ways. And so the question for us this Palm Sunday as we enter into Holy Week is will we look for his coming? We begin this week, Holy Week, at the heart And again, at the heart of Holy Week is the invitation that asks us to behold God in the person of Christ. That's the point of the entire passion narrative. When we behold Jesus, we are beholding God. When we see Jesus enter into Jerusalem, share an intimate meal with his friends, 
friends who are about to betray him and run away. When we see Jesus kissed mockingly on the cheek, when we see Jesus healing a man who'd come to arrest him for, uh, to come arrest him of a wound given by one of Jesus's friends, when we see Jesus put on trial in the name of God, when we see Jesus insulted and beaten and put on trial again in the courts of worldly empire, as we behold Jesus in all of this, we are beholding God. God betrayed and mocked. God healing one come as an enemy. God put on trial and beaten. God put on a cross. God comes not just into Jerusalem, but into the innermost parts of us. Will we welcome him? Because when he comes, he comes not too worried about our expectations. Not too worried about how we expect he will come. But he comes and he is faithful in his coming. And the question is, will we welcome him? Will we welcome the reversal he brings? For in that reversal, what he brings is restoration, shalom, life. Abundant life. Eternal life, here and now, life. Friends, Christ has come, Christ has died, he has risen, and he will come again. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.